0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 334 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Leading Lyme, an interview with Dr. Kent Holtorf. Dr. Holtorf and his two brothers were all born with Lyme disease from their mother. Throughout their lives, they had terrible anxiety, fatigue, depression, and they kept being told by doctors they needed to sleep more, exercise more, or simply relax. Dr. Holtorf fought against the symptoms and went to medical school and became a Dr. Eventually, he was diagnosed with Lyme disease, Babesia, Barnella, and a number of reactivated viruses and mold toxicity. As he discovered the treatment protocols that worked for him, he opened up centers to treat patients that were going through similar issues. Eventually, he formed Holtorf Medical Group, which is a world renowned treatment center for Lyme disease, and many of our past podcast guests have treated there, like our good friend Danny Tiger. Today, Dr. Holtorf is training other doctors about the reality and severity of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. He's been featured on a wide variety of news platforms like CNBC, ABC, CNN, Extra, Discovery Health, the Today Show, ESPN, The Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, US News and World Report, US Weekly, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, New York Daily News, and so many more. Dr. Holtorf is also the founder and director of the nonprofit national academy of hypothyroidism and integrative sciences. In his brilliant podcast episode, you're going to get a behind the scenes look at Dr. Holtorf, his transition into a Lyme literate medical doctor that's world renowned, helping many people in California and exactly what he's doing today to help his patients. So without further ado, here's Dr. Holtorf in leading Lyme.
1: Hello, Dr. Holtorf, and welcome to
2: the Tick Camp podcast. Thank you. And as I mentioned, you guys have the best name out there, so uh, uh, that's awesome. You're doing great service,
1: so I, I thank you. Well, thank you, and 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 I want to uh, extend my thank yous to my good friend, our good friend, Daisy White, who's agreed to uh, co-host with me again. So I guess I wasn't too bad last time, Daisy, because you agreed to come back and uh, join me
0: again.
3: Yes, I'm very excited to be in your midst again.
0: And not just Daisy anymore, Rich. This is going to be the first ever interview we've done with a special guest co-host and you and I with the brilliant Dr. Holtorf. So we are really excited tonight.
2: This is the first one with the special needs. Yes. (laughs)
3: And I can attest to that because (laughs) I'm
2: taking over your treatment.
3: I I happen to be Dr. Ken Holtorf's patient advocate. I have the great privilege of that. And of course, doctor, it's a double-edged sword, yes. And I can um, state that many things, many podcasts, many interviews, many things out there about um, Kent as a doctor, Dr. Holter as a doctor and the brilliance of what he's brought to the Lyme community (laughs) and to patients at large. Um, Kent and I have collaborated immensely on on multiple patients um, over the years.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for those wonderful celebrities. Yes. (laughs)
3: Okay, so Kent and I have worked a lot together, but what I'd like to say and and what I'd like to lead with and how I'd like to begin this is that I know him well as a patient, as a Lyme patient. And um, his journey is one that I think can be really helpful to many people. Um, It's also extremely interesting. He's been through many, many incarnations of treatment. And I'm very excited to help um, the community understand Kent as Kent the Lyme patient. And so this is my intent today is to give um, voice.
2: No, it's weird. I don't have that wall that I can just start spewing scientific facts.
3: To help give voice to Kent, the human, the patient, the Lyme patient. And so I'd like to begin without further ado to ask about where you live.
2: Who's asking? I'm asking, Are you a cop? <laughs> I'm <laughs> uh, asking where you live. I live in Redonda Beach, California.
3: Okay. And um, have you always lived in Redonda Beach? Have you always lived in California?
2: Uh, I grew up in Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yes, they didn't, went to Berkeley, then UCLA, and then to St. Louis for medical school. And the farthest east i had been before that was Vegas. Okay. So I show up, I'm like, wait, what's this Wait crap you know are we supposed to go to school on this you know like it's crazy but uh yeah it was was interesting a little different uh flavor out there
3: so um but you grew up here and your family's from here and you were you were an only child you had siblings no uh, uh
2: two other brothers uh oldest brother uh 6'4, full head of hair, good looking. That don't happen to me. Well, I do kind of know what happened to me. But um, football scholarship to Stanford, dated Heather Lockley, like just had everything going from, got accepted to UCLA Film School, but kind of never worked a day in his life. And he got drafted and then just kind of uh, drug stuff. And then he passed away. Um, and I'm then sorry. My, middle, my middle brother.
3: And that was recent, right? He passed away recently.
2: Um, Not so uh, a couple years ago. A couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. And, and when we were talking about Lyme transmission and in utero, I know, like, I know I had it my whole life. And like my mom, we just called her the sweating machine. Like she would just sweat like crazy. And, uh, and she had a lot of addictive behaviors, but she didn't drink and, um, and then my dad had chronic fatigue syndrome before there was chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, and I go, "Oh, what's your lazy, I'll go exercise that, that type of thing. And then my middle brother is just a hopeless, uh, mental illness, um, you know, drug addiction. And I think that really affected. And I was, and my mom, when I was born actually in Castro Valley, um, she was doing like uh dexedrine to keep her weight down and smoking five packs a day and surprise surprise i was born at 24 weeks so i was either supposed to die or be retarded so you can decide which one it is um and the kennedy kid was in the hospital and he got the incubator so i got the oval being bagged for like two months but turned out incubators gave him too much oxygen and they died But, you know, just reading like studies on like, if you don't have immediate skin to skin contact with the baby, like you lose like, you know, 30 IQ points. So I could have been almost, (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, she was not self-deprecating at all. And, uh, and uh, she had a daughter who died uh, previously. So she just left the hospital because she didn't want to know of me if I wasn't going to come home. You know, so uh, I'm not mad at that. I mean, it's very understandable, but um, I thought my, you know, people are going to ask me about my childhood, I'm like, I think it was normal, but maybe some of those things aren't quite normal.
3: Right. I mean, we don't know what's not normal because what's normal is what's normal for us when we're going through it until we can compare notes later. And
2: your, um, everyone's uncle didn't sleep with them?
3: No, that's not a common thing.
2: So, was so days.
3: tell me when when you were living. I mean, obviously, your mom went to pick you up after a few months, and you did grow up in your so family. <laughs> so you did have um, a normal family life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and you're the youngest, obviously, of three boys. And how and how, you know, what were you aspi- aspiring to when you were a young boy or? Teenage boy, did you always want to be
2: a doctor? Ever since I can remember. Okay. Which is kind of weird, but uh, filling out the aptitude tests and like they do in high school, and it says what you should be. I should be an underwater welder. And I'm claustrophobic. I hate the water. It's like, okay, Okay. you know, but no, I
3: come up with that.
2: yeah, I don't know. Just like for some reason, you remember these these weird things, and had a very good you know, basically high school experience, and, you know, uh, the captain of the sophomore football team, academic athlete of the year, valedictorian, but then they took it away from me because my speech was a little condescending, I guess, and, um, but my brother was, he stuttered, he was overweight, and, and which makes me, nothing against all the PE teachers and the teachers out there but they would make fun of him and like and they would like bring me to the front of the line and just treated him like dirt and I just resented it mm-hmm. and I think it's really a lot of things have but I think that was one of the things just killed his self-esteem um and he's this messed- is your eldest or your uh, middle, middle middle no the oldest one in confidence like crazy
3: okay so do you think that there is something about being your middle brother's younger brother that you know propelled you to want to help and heal and take care of people? Was mm-hmm. that something? No
2: <laughs> I, just didn't, I didn't want to do anything I didn't want to have anything to do with him like he okay. gets arrested and, but he's arrest proof because like he passed out on a bus and someone took his cell phone and so he got woke up and kept everyone getting off the bus and the bus they have like a button and the police immediately come so they arrest him for holding hostages and stuff and they're taking him in and he's so irritating they pulled over and they said get the hell out (laughs) like so it's like um, okay
3: so that was not an impetus for you so what is what is it that you know gave you the inspiration the aspiration the dream? i kind of get a
2: calculation who would get the most chicks and drugs (laughs) Okay. <laughs> but no I'm I'm kidding but kind of but um no it's just always something I that that's what my passion was I love I love science and um and just kind of that's what I figured out to be I don't know how much of my parents influence but um like my mom's had a lot of great advice like you're like oh this is hard well then just quit and so I would go against that, but my middle brother unfortunately took that advice all the time.
3: It's quite a dynamic, so uh, and also I remember you and I've talked about this, so your mom was like a very heavy smoker,
2: yeah, they all had both of them like five packs a day, and,
3: and they were not necessarily well
2: either uh no, again, my dad was was sick, and they had a baby who died, which you know I don't blame them at all, but i I'm sure it was from you know. The secondhand smoke but probably also with the mattresses in those days putting the kid on their back you know but they lost a the child which is the most the worst thing that can i think a parent can go through and it totally changed them you know sure. and then they thought my middle brother was the re. he looked just like her was a reincarnation of um uh of andrea so she doted over him anything go i just stole five hundred dollars out of the register. If you don't come, uh, put in, I'm going to jail. She's, you know, uh, right down there. And I didn't know until after my mom died that we were Mormon, but my mom, <laughs> after the, uh, How you know, does that I, happen? Yeah. Kind of after the daughter died, she <laughs> said, there is it. no God. God wouldn't do that to anyone. And then my dad who was atheist turned to Christianity, you know, to help him deal with it. So we grew up as Christian,
0: I, I do want to ask that you did you learn anything about Lyme disease tick borne illness? Were you aware of these health issues that existed all around you? And it sounds like that you were born with Lyme and had congenital Lyme. or Was any of this on your radar as a young yeah. child, even so, into your teenage years?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had no clue of Lyme. Like, and in those days, you know, we didn't have computers, we didn't have anything. And I just remember, like, in college, and you know, basically going the to uh, med- uh, the university library, finding the journals, getting the photocopy. And so it was really, um, information was a scarcity and a value. Now we get too much information and you got to filter through what's, what's basically right or wrong. But what started happening like through high school, like one pupil is always bigger than the other. Um, like one half of my body would be sweating, the other one freezing. My left arm would stop working for a while, and you know, I couldn't find anything. So, like, I know I had, I had something, and oh, for Reynolds, like crazy, I couldn't shake hands. And then I it. I also have kind of a theory of babesia and drug addiction, like with my brothers, um, uh, both of them, but. That's why I really think the kind of in utero is is much more prevalent than I think is felt. You know that is generally agreed upon.
3: And so, when can I mean I I you know I know that you started having these symptoms. Can you talk about how they started to progress to a point where they started to accelerate to a point where then somebody you know was there was a more acute version of what you were going through
2: yeah and i don't know i mean i'm the most add person i've ever met i have the worst memory of anyone i have ever met unless it's I would a agree. medical study like i can quote medical studies and i think it's you know more of a connection but i uh i go to dinner with some with my girlfriend she talked about them, like, who are they you know um, I mean, I'm scared to take one of the, the dementia tests, but I am better doing, you know, with, with peptides and like cerebrolysin and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's always been bad. It's been a handicap because not remembering people, um, this is a big negative and yeah. you got over it. it's like, oh, hi, do I know you? Or I, I went to Berkeley uh, oh, in high school, I went, uh, my parents moved, and I went to high school for one day. I said, I'm not going. They're like, yes, you are. I'm like, no, I'm not. So I was pretty stubborn. And I said, no, I'm going back down to my old high school. And they go, well, we're not giving you money. I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, I basically just, you know, live with families. And, uh, and then we went to our reunion. I'm talking to this guy. I'm like, who are you? He's like, you live with me for a year, <laughs> you yeah. know. So uh, I can't recognize faces so well. And my mom had that problem. you know some knowledge of genetic and, and that, but um, I need like kind of the uh, devil wears prod, like someone behind me, like this is so-and-so. Um, or we had our Christmas party and I'm talking about this guy, uh, one of the employees that's uh, so great. He helps me with research. And they're like, and I'm like, what? Nobody's awesome. Was the wrong guy, you know? um and so yeah uh I do a lot of generic hey how you doing you know instead of uh
3: so can can you tell us a little bit about how your symptoms like progressed so that there was kind of a better understanding from you from doctors or not understanding I know that I know your story so I know there's some pretty dramatic things that occurred can you help us understand
2: yeah so I was Pretty good. You know, I was functioning. I mean weird things that would happen to me. Like in college, they called me the claw because my hand would stop working. I couldn't hold a glass. And but I wouldn't do anything about it because I knew they would go in and say there's nothing that we don't know. Um, and then as I went into medical school, especially residency, I'm like, something's really wrong here. Like everything was overwhelming, um, just Anxiety, couldn't sleep, night sweats, got you know, restless legs. Um, and I, you know, go to the university doctors, like, oh, you're just stressed, you know, take an antidepressant. I'm like, I'm not depressed, I can't function. And so I'm like, what am I gonna do? And then for residency, I'm like, okay, what are my choices? Okay, wait, anesthesia, the patients are asleep, I don't have to talk to them, you know. And but I forgot the part about getting up early um, so and then you know it was ingrained in medical school that anything alternative, integrative means no evidence right and I am was very evidence based I'm very evidence based now so that wasn't a consideration until I'm like I can't live like this I'm going to you know uh, and so I snuck off didn't tell anyone to you know, so-called integrative uh, conferences and I'm like wait a minute like, what a lie. These are more evidence-based than the stuff they're teaching me in residency, you know? And, and so went on a program of like, you know, like my, t- my testosterone level was normal, but the lowest two and a half percent. My thyroid level, same thing. And high-dose T3 was a savior for me. Um, some of immune modulators and things like that, mitochondrial boosters, uh, and, I'm like, oh my God, I'm a new person. Um, and I'm like, what am I doing in anesthesia? I hate it. And then went to, into family practice, took over a family practice that was all insurance, but we called it the thyroid optimization clinic and no advertising. It just took off and it was cash. We spend more time. We find, you know, and then from there, once you start treating things like that, you find so many other things. And instead of doing the typical, you know, whatever HMO and people are like, oh, that's not my area. Go over here. No, I'm going to find, you know, read all the research and come back to that person and say, look, this is what I found. Let's try this. And, and, and where
3: do you in this Process in terms of your health. Like you've optimized your thyroid, you're optimizing other people's thyroid. Yeah. But where are you in terms of your health? Have you oh, yeah. in a better place?
2: And, or? and I was in Phoenix because um I figured I got to have a backup to medicine. So we started a beer company and we actually had a hangover-free beer. We had double-blind receiving control studies and we put it out. And then the Bureau back of Academic Tobacco Firearms says you can't make a healthy beer. You know, and uh, and then we made a energy beer before there were any energy beers, and people were like, "Why would I want that?" You know, now we wouldn't understand. So we were at all the 7 Seven Elevens, uh, like the Hard Rock. We did a little uh, Super Bowl uh, Super Bowl party with little naughty nurses running around with Dr. Holty's little beer company. But we had a bad business plan, so when we tried to scale up, it was contract brewers, and plus. At that time, people wouldn't pay more than five dollars six pack. You know, now it's like seventeen dollars for a four pack, but and it costs us seven to make. So we tried to make it up in volume, which didn't work. Uh, you know, and funnest industry ever. But I would see patients during the day and then go try to hot beer at night, uh, which is humbling. But uh, we had no money either. So, but I, so we ended up selling to Rock Bottom uh, for a rock bottom price. But uh I wouldn't it was like getting an MBA
0: did you I'm just curious so you're, you're making me think of four locos because when I was a kid and I'm you know the biggest thing was to go out and drink four locos and you'd get you know the energy drink you'd get the the beer right the, and that was wildly popular but it sounds like it was uh, you were ahead of your time with, in your market there
2: yeah I think it was five years early and plus I made it an IPA which, that's what I like but it killed it because people are like oh oh," you know now it's like you know the biggest growing style but we yeah we should so
3: where are you in your health I mean you're burning the candle at both ends which is top online patients so
2: was doing pretty well and although I it was more like a treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome, which I think is one of the worst things that they've ever done. Because you know, you look at chronic fatigue syndrome, you have these symptoms. Oh, you got chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, we can't do anything about it. We're not going to do any you know test to see what it's from. Here's the antidepressant. Get out of my office. Fibromyalgia. He'll you know, press out 11 out of 18 tender points, and there's nothing special about those tender points either. It's like how do you do fibromyalgia? You got muscle pain and, you know, brain fog and fatigue. Yes, okay, doctor. you got it. I, you know, and they have these rheumatology specialists, like with a dolometer or whatever, and they take them 40 minutes to do an exam for fibromyalgia. And or people, are like I remember Richard saying, how do you know if they're better? I'm like, ask them, you know. Um, but we become much more sophisticated with like labs that we can, and our standard panel is about 40 tests to start with. And we can generally tell if someone has chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme, um, uh, and uh, basically how severe they are, probably 70% ish accuracy. Yeah, but.
3: So are you considering yourself at this point a chronic fatigue syndrome patient? How are you managing yourself
2: as a uh, patient? Because I'm kind of a Sears patient now. And then. No,
3: but I mean at this stage of your development.
2: Oh. Uh, talking about then yeah yeah I figured chronic fatigue syndrome because really Lyme was not even on the radar and so it was chronic fatigue syndrome fibromyalgia o- so you
3: were really your own doctor there was no other doctor working with you telling you what was going on
2: yeah yeah at and, what
3: point did Lyme become something that you understood yeah.
2: so what happened was then um I went through a very stressful divorce you know when I hired an attorney who says, oh, it doesn't have to be nasty. We'll make it mutual. She hires Gloria Allred for a, a consultant and fires her because they got a fight. And then the woman on the cover of Power Woman a, a magazine, you know, and so it was a five-year um, divorce that with a crazy person um, and was so, this is like stress. And we find that three things, cause chronic illness in general. Maybe I'll put four in there. Stress is huge. And you'll see people, death of a child, family member, could be an accident, another illness, often sets everything off. And it did a very big disservice to especially women who all of a sudden got chronic fatigue syndrome when they were stressed, like I say, a divorce. So doctors, oh yeah, you're just a stressed out woman, you know, and just discounted it. But so toxins, which were more selective back then, now everyone just bombarded uh, with so many toxins. And you know, mold is is a big thing. I'm we're going yeah. to talk about that. I want to talk about then. And so then I was fine, but all of a sudden I just got so overwhelmed with this divorce that huge symptoms hit by a bus. Bed bound, um, sweating. I couldn't sleep. Terrible neuropathy. Um, I ended up going into heart failure. My heart was fibrosed, which I now know was from high human growth factor beta, uh, which is a big problem. Uh, and I couldn't stand up. I couldn't. It would take me hours to walk up the stairs. I mean, I could not function. Everything was overwhelming to me. Answering a phone, like. What are these people calling like at three in the afternoon? What's wrong with them? You know? And uh, and then so with the heart failure, I went to the um, cardiologist and he's did an echo. He goes, You got a lot of like your heart's fibrosed, it wouldn't fill enough. And he goes, Maybe in 10 years you get 10% better. So I'm like, I'm not gonna live like this. I'll I will you know, I plan my suicide on Halloween for some reason, but and then so I said, "Well, I'm either going to do it or let me try to fix it." So I kind of went around the world at one mile an hour, um, you know, bent over, running through the, you know, not running but moving through the airport. I remember um, uh, and just going to different doctors, doing weird stuff, did a lot of weird treatments. A lot of things worked, you know.
3: So, like, what are some of the treatments that you did?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, plasmapheresis, which is obviously awesome, you know, ozone. um, We uh, uh, basically did um, the apheresis and we took out the natural killer cells. And then I I called this guy. So I, I, I read a study on with Lyme that the dendritic cells are screwed up. And those are the the cells are the most. Plentiful white cells are very small. And they recognize the foreign thing and they bring them back to the other white cells to tell them, hey, let's go kill this thing. And they're totally dysfunctional in cancer. I read that article. I'm like, that's interesting. And the same day, in a different journal, I happen to read the same thing goes on with Lyme. So I said, This is what I need. And so I called all like the cancer centers of America and Places and I'll, I'm like, can you do this? I'll bring you Lyme antigens, and you say, like, uh, let me think about it. No, <laughs> you know. And so, but I found a um, guy I knew through ILADS, from the Lyme organization, and he did like, oh, my uh, yeah, Omar Morales at Lyme, Lyme Mexico. Lyme Mexico, and uh, I said, hey, uh, you're doing natural killer cell function and apheresis. What if you take out my killer cells? I'll bring you Lyme antigens. Let's stimulate it and put it back. And he goes, I haven't done it before, but yeah, let's do it. Um, and so we did it and I felt great, you know? And then, but uh, we tried to freeze it and then bring it back for treatment. And we it told, it, told yeah. it, we just, it was just mush.
3: Um, I remember, so I, Kent and I met um, six years ago. How long have we known each other? Seven years ago? Anyway, quite a long time time.
2: Always like three months.
3: Yeah. And um, we met through a patient because I brought a patient to work with you and we worked and so that's sort of hard. But at the time that um, I met Kent, he was very much in the throes of his own treatment i um, was oh, just sweating. And just, he yeah. had turned blue, like blue. Um, and you called yourself smurf at the time.
2: Well, I didn't notice it, no one told me. I was doing I was doing high jo- high dose argeria, no, not argeria, um, argentin, which I wrote a paper saying you can't get argeria, and another one of the doctors in the office convinced me to do Gary Gordon's like silver. And within a week, I'm just blue.
3: He was blue, and, gray,
2: blue. And and then I took dapsone and got methaglobinemia. And uh and then I was just purple.
3: Yeah. I mean he was wor- it was worrisome. You know, we we were all who knew him and who worked with him and who, you know, we would worry about him because and that was before you went to Omar. before you did all that. yeah yeah um, and so
2: I was basically saying okay um that hey there's like the Horowitz style who's awesome uh contributes so much to new treatments and he's more multi-system now but just you need higher higher antibiotics right and so I was doing like seven eight antibiotics at three times a dose five times a dose I would never give that to a patient, but I'm like, I'm going to kill this thing. It's going to kill me. And, um, uh, and then I end up in, in the hospital with sepsis. And, and I remember one of the nurses on the change, I could hear, she goes, Oh, this is that AIDS patient. that keeps turning up negative for HIV, like man, you know, and, uh, uh, and then what after started, you know, kind of getting into the treatment and multi-system, I found that my natural killer cell function, which is the cell that, that basically kills intercellular infections, cancer, it was zero. So it wouldn't matter how much, because antibiotics don't kill everything, they knock it down to a certain points so the immune system can take over. And we find that is probably the best marker for uh, downstream TH1 activities. Um, and then so what we've learned going is that you know, your body has uh, in a gross oversimplification, but you have to, because it's the immune system is like TH1, Treg, TH2, TH17. And so the TH1 gets stuff inside the cell, TH2 gets stuff outside the cell. TH17 is like the autoimmune antibody. And like when you get Lyme it immediately secretes cytokines to suppress TH1, then it goes in the cell, usually within four or eight hours. So this whole, Oh, it has to be connected, you know, and then it suppresses that TH1. Then it goes intracellular. Now you've got chronic Lyme and also with just aging and you can kind of look at chronic Lyme, chronic Lyme as, as accelerated aging. I mean, there's all the same components. Right. Um, and uh so with no T, Th1, that it doesn't matter. You're not going to be able. And also you have all this inflammation because it's like a teeter-totter. And so the body's trying to compensate. And you just feel terrible. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of became, we were a kind of hormone optimization and thyroid. Then we we're the big antibiotic people. Now we're, I would say, you know, we do a lot of things. We still do all those things. But an immune modulatory clinic. Right. And, and we've gotten patients so much better, they often don't need antibiotics, or instead of the five years, three years, and feeling horrible, oh great, means it's working. That maybe three months, um, four months. And I'll tell you my recent relapse. Yeah. Right. So no, we don't have to do it right now. But,
3: no, no, no. So 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 essentially you're saying that um you went through you know, doing all of these heavy duty antibiotics. That was like a big, that was sort of the beginning. I met you during that time, you were doing a lot of killing. Then you, you tried to work through doing um, more kind of immune enhancement with Omar and Omar has a lot of very, you know, interesting tricks that way. Um, did you feel at that stage did you feel that okay now I'm cured now I'm not a Lyme patient mm-hmm. anymore
2: okay so I, I had good days I make it to the office but just feeling horrible and then sweating and I did a media tour it was like you know Fox News Good Morning America um, you know uh, CBS you know all, all those shows and it was just like I had to spray this stuff on my hair the night before to keep from sweating. And it's just like all aluminum. It's just like he it burned ah! And I'm like, oh my God, that, how much aluminum do I get from that? But, um, you know, it's a struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. life's hard as it is. But then mm-hmm. when you add lime or specific obesity, that, you know, pieces, especially piece lime, will tell someone, oh, how bad it is. They don't know. And I found that people tend to lose empathy about two to three weeks. Okay, they'll give it to you, you know, but then after a while, it's like, come on here go exercise, you know, here, eat the the better, you know, and you're like, I want to kill you. And even my, you know, wife was started to do that. And I'm like, if you keep this up, we're, I can't you know, I, I can't be with you just saying that, oh, just get out, like, please don't say that time, you know, right, um, because you just, you, it just, you feel so bad to the bone, you know, yeah. and then I had, you know, neuropathy, restless legs, where I couldn't stand up, I couldn't sit down, I would just take, like, 20 showers a night trying to get some relief, um, just the anxiety, you can't, it, you can't tolerate any stress, um, you know, the brain fog, the muscle aches. The, I mean, it's just so multi-system. You know?
3: So when you went past you know, doing the work with Omar, what was the pivot for you after that, where you're like, OK, so this worked to some extent. I have had some gains, maybe not so many gains. Yeah. What was the next step? Yeah, really a lot
2: of treatments it. that didn't do anything. And some of them are good treatments like for a number of people, but you know, nothing works for everyone. And, um, but so I went to Europe, I was just traveling around, just trying to find unique therapies. And I was in Belgium and I found uh, some peptides and I took them and I really didn't expect anything. And then like three days later, I just, go, I just walked up the damn stairs upright. Wait a minute. What did I do? And so kind of went back and said, oh my gosh, these peptides started taking that. I'm like, I'm feeling good. And But at that time, we couldn't get them into the US. But shortly after that, um, we were able to. So we kind of became a, you know known for peptides. But, but we do so many things like, you know, from PTSD, neurodegenerative diseases, hypothyroidism, you know, hormone optimization. But um, we're kind of known for that um, because we put out, where'd you put out a line of injectable peptides, but the regulations were just crazy cross state that uh, we didn't want to risk that. But now we have a line of um, integrated peptides, which are uh, supplements and And so,
3: So did you feel that peptides were kind of a cure and a solve for you? Was that the solve for you? It was,
2: it changed my life. It it saved my life. Mm Yeah. Okay. So
3: that was like a big, that was the big step forward for you. Yeah. I'm not
2: saying I wasn't doing anything else, Mm -hmm. you know, and immune activation of coagulation. My blood was so thick, you could not take it out with like a 14 gauge, like Trocar. I had to like try to stand on the desk to just get a CC out and so really learned about, about the science by that. and you look at so many people are hypercoagulable then you add you know the vaccine to that and COVID um, it's it's a huge problem and then you know recently but the uh, thing so you know curing that was great because I figured I'm going to drop dead of a heart attack or a stroke here anytime, any time. But, um, and most doctors will put people on like Eliquis or, or these things. In fact, uh, the other doctor in office has, a, he had a totally occluded femoral artery and I gave him four stents. They all caught it off like cement. Wow. And, and they told them that, well, Eliquis is better than heparin or Lobanox. Um, And I'm like, no, it's not. And he said, it's interesting because I said a, a patient who he put on Eloquist because all the research supposedly that they do says, oh, it's safer, it's better. And he said, so he put her on it and she just felt horrible. And obviously that didn't work for him. And uh, we found it interesting on um, like the uh, like a lot of Lyme chat groups, mast cell chat groups that they're especially the mast cell guys are so smart, so nerdy, and I mean that in a good way, but they're so in the biochemistry, they miss the clinical picture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying, I'm doing, you know, heparin for POTS, and they're like, no way, heparin is going to make it worse. I'm like, and then you kind of start, believe well, me, call the patients. I'm like, let's switch you to Lovenox at least. They're like, no, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and heparin also, it's very antimicrobial and immune modulator. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen it stimulate mast cells. Yeah,
3: yeah, no, you've used, you've used um, heparin with a lot of our mutual um, patients. Um, so, um, Now, I just want to talk a little bit about this last, you know, eight, nine months of your treatment, because I've been very much on board with it. So I can, you know, contribute Um, for many years, you know, as I was coming and working with you and seeing patients and stuff, you'd always say, I I need to talk to you about my teeth, Daisy. I need to talk to you about my teeth. Oh, yes. And I was like, yeah, well, I need to get a panoramic x-ray, you know, and
2: This and this was after eight dentists, periodontists, oral surgeons, biologic dentist said nothing going on there. i like, I got swollen glands. I got, I, you know, I could just feel it. And then, uh, so I'll let you tell Well, me.
3: the other thing is that Kent has been on camera um, a lot. He's on camera a lot for peptide conferences and um, all kinds of interviews and all sorts of things, as, you know, as, as a doctor who's well-known in the community, and unfortunately poor Kent his teeth were kind of falling apart breaking apart and he had been gluing them back together oh, himself yeah.
2: so with super glue. I went I went to a all started was I went to a dentist who referred by a patient who I thought as a recommendation but she was getting paid you know okay. and uh and so I go in and I just want to get some veneers and but he's just grinding 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 I'm like like, do you say any something? do you say something? Like, I don't want to be rude. Um, and then, so he like leaves for a second. I pulled my phone, I'm like, what the hell? He ground all my teeth down and did a whole, whole crown. And they came out over a hundred times. And I remember I was walking up to lecture at A4M and my two front teeth fell out. Um, and it's just been a disaster. And Oran, I did the um, Peptide Summit where I interviewed like 50 doctors. And during the interview, my teeth fell out, you know, and I said, let's roll. And we got so many great responses. Like, if he leaves that on, he's going to be telling the truth. Like, you know,
3: like I had heart failure. I have no teeth.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: So anyway, so after like multiple times, you know, I just say Kent, you know, you've got to give me a panoramic x-ray. Like I've got to have it vetted. Dah, dah, dah. So, you know, I don't know. This is like a two, three-year process. We keep talking about this. Yeah, I'm not look, good. But like, it's very bad at follow-through. And I'm, I'm like, I'm Kent, doing as
2: I say, not as I do. I go
3: say. to this office and they're gonna do a panoramic x ray and they're gonna send it to me. Okay. And let's, you know, let me see. Let me vet it. Let me so I send it to Switzerland and it comes back and it's like. I'm like, okay, Kent, we have to go to Europe together. And so that was when our relationship kind of became a little bit more formal as me being your health advocate and um you being my client. I would have blown
2: it off. Oh yeah,
3: he okay, would have blown it off. But so um, but I well, in my role, you know, it's kind of hard to blow me off because I make <laughs> all the goals and set all for sure. of, you know, so <laughs> kind of like the protocol police. And so so anyways, so so we went to Europe and we, we've we been now twice um, and we all got COVID. <laughs> it was
2: very fun. I'm still mad because she goes, you got COVID. I go, no, it's not COVID." No, no. He
3: says to me post-op, something's wrong with me, Daisy. I need to take a lot of antibiotics. You know, like, could you get me some more like this one and this one and that one? And I look at him, he's like, I have a fever and I'm like, can't. I don't think you have an infection in your mouth. Like, no. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I think you have COVID.
2: I'm like, oh, um, I don't
3: have COVID.
2: <laughs> and then we do the tests and I'm like, damn it. False positive. <laughs>
3: so he had COVID. Um, but anyway, so Kent had this amazingly um, self-orchestrated dental plan. He had green glue. He had like, you know, a, a like oh, a yeah, very I mean, strange bone graft that had like no, it had like a like a staple and like some weird metal in it. Um, I mean, we can, we we have this dream to um, make him and myself a case study through, you know, uh,
2: yeah, uh, a because we both think, have
3: like the worst dental cases, and so
2: you yeah, know we're we doing that documentary. Um I don't know if you've talked, you've talked about that, but um and uh, uh what the hell was I getting at? Your um, teeth. The case yeah study. that oh I, I just I think teeth are such an important part. I you know I'm, I'm like oh teeth, whatever, blah blah blah. Uh it's huge. And so many people, you know, they have their wisdom teeth pulled, they don't, they don't suture it, they don't or get root canals. And it doesn't get all the bacteria out and just festers in there. And I learned, I thought, oh, you get an x-ray, you know, no, it doesn't, it doesn't show or they don't look close enough. But when we looked at the x-rays that they looked at, when you looked at it, you're like, well, wait a minute, what's this here? What's this here? But-
3: One of the amazing things about working with biohealth clinic for me um, as a patient advocate and as a patient as well, but as a patient advocate is that they, is so much, you know, um, collaboration. I'm in the surgery and I was, in the they, surgery. Listen to and they, they do listen to me and, you know, we can look at things that it might be kind of in the balance and really kind of weigh them and use applied kinesiology to understand. And so we did a really, really thorough job and, and, and it was an amazing journey. It was amazing for you, but it also provided some, um, you know, there was unfortunately dental work can kind of, uh, Bring forth some latent symptoms, you know, some latent symptomology, and some. I some, felt
2: great after nine-hour surgery. Yes, and it's true.
3: There's very little pain, Just but take then.
2: out butter out of my jaw.
3: But then there was a period where you had a little bit of a tough time, you know, and after that, in the interim. Um, yeah,
2: well, I think we know why now.
3: Um, because he went home to a mold.
2: Well, I I think that set it off. So we were building a home and it's so far behind. So we sold our other house. Good timing, we thought. Um, And been living in hotels and Airbnbs, but they don't allow you to do long-term. So we had a suitcase and just stressing the heck out of me. Um, But uh, uh, so we went. Back the second time, and and yeah, you know, I'm like I'm not feeling well, and uh, and then so she goes, we gotta go get this inospheresis, and I love plasmapheresis, but plasmapheresis they basically separate out your blood from your plasma, and they dump your plasma, so they gotta give you back albumin, gluten, which now, you know, it seems to be you know cleaned a little better than blood, but our blood supplies totally contaminated so you You clean blood and
3: then you give a dirty person's albumin back to the clean-blooded person
2: yeah in america
3: this is how it's done and
2: and with this machine it actually takes your uh, plasma puts it through you know specialized filters and gives it back to you and the stuff that came out was he's like well first i go there and he does live cell analysis and he's been doing this for a long time. He's actually retired. He came back and he stands up and like his footboard drops. He goes, this is the worst blood I've seen in 43 years. I'm like, oh.
3: <laughs> i Dracula because he takes everybody's blood and cleans
0: And
2: I'm like, but I'm doctor, hold
0: on You know, give us, and- give us some more information on that. What, what how bad, was your blood right like what was in it was it was was he seeing other bacteria viruses no you know, give us a little more to, meat on that bone look at
2: that and actually I mean, was sending he,
3: it. he had severe rouleau syndrome where it was every cell was completely clumped together there were no white blood cells we couldn't see yeah, any no, white I mean, blood cells and um we, do we have the So we just have the afters. yeah that's like that
2: was and in between. and
3: he basically looked like there was is it was completely asphyxiated. Like there was absolutely no
2: I don't see how it was flowing.
3: There was yeah, and it wasn't, by the way, one of the reasons because Swiss Biohealth Clinic does have an in as machine, but they wouldn't do it because they had to do a groin catheter and um because Kent's veins and even during his second surgery, we couldn't and so when you when you do um Dental jawbone surgery um, at at Swiss BioHealth Clinic, they use, um, they draw a good amount of blood so that they can make this protein-rich growth factor, which then they put into your bone as a stem cell your own and it looks like worms essentially and you know his his um we call them membranes his membranes were so poor we could almost not use them we had to draw his blood you three know that's different that's, times. Very,
2: that's very hurtful
3: i'm sorry you had shitty membranes, <laughs> and so <laughs> and There's so essentially, you know when he was asleep we were like this is not like a sign of optimal oh, you're, health
2: you're talking, talking about, about
3: so, I mean, when he came to, I was like, you know, Ken, I'm concerned about the quality of your blood. Like, I want to take you to do an asphoriasis. So we met yeah,
2: a lot of people Stan, lot. Um,
3: to Alpstein and, and yeah, and so, and Dracula was like, I've seen a lot of funny yeah, guys, so, but you're the funniest.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he says, oh, you got to, you know, take it easy, Da da da. And then I'm on my phone making all these calls. He goes, I'm glad to see that you're following my recommendation. Yeah, he's like, you've got to stop. I didn't get the sarcasm. I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, but yeah, here's the before. So you That's can my see like the blood, blood.
3: Like, cells, just not, there's no wow. separation of cells. They're like, completely- I don't know. It's
0: like- Really told up, can, if you're comfortable can you can you please email us those photos so we can attach yeah. them to the show yeah, notes yeah. because our, our listeners There's can't like, see the, the video all it's the, like the, hot flour, flour
2: macaroni and cheese
0: yeah it's all then, it's all just globed like
2: yeah
3: and then after two inaspheresis and with a very interesting inter inter what was that what we call it? intermission because one, because Kent and I can say this lovingly, Kent is not light-handed when it comes to his own care. Oh, is I it?
2: I do toxicity he studies myself. In fact, last night I took I had taken Dapsone before, up. and so I told my girlfriend, and I just happened to have I got anemia turned blue, uh, and happened to have IV met, um, uh, methylene blue in you know my house so I just ran it. But so I told her, okay, I'm gonna do this pill. Can you keep these in case I'm dying? She's like, oh, I gotta go to bed. And I'm like, well I'm glad your priorities are are right. She's used to <laughs> And hit- she goes, get a mm-hmm. bell. I'm like, I might be able to speak. So
3: so the first trip, his girlfriend Lori, who's this just wonderful, wonderful person who understands this journey herself, um, came with us. And so, and when we're flying there, she's like, "Tell me about this clinic. Tell me where we're going." Blah blah blah. And he's like, "Oh, I don't know."
2: See, I normally I'd research it, but when Daisy, I mean, Daisy's been to every expert in every country, and she's been there, and then she in, integrates that, you know, to her knowledge and her care. So, I I don't trust any doctor generally. But I trust you, you know?
3: So, you know, his girlfriend's like, how do you not have me not research this? You know, like, we're, this is where we're going. Yeah, so I feel like,
2: yeah.
3: second trip, she's like, well, honestly, Daisy, I don't think I need to go. You got this. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right. I got this. So the second day we're supposed to go to races, Um, I get, you know, we're at the hotel and I think I was on a different floor than you. But anyway, we get a, I get a text from Kent yeah, saying, got the nice I'm not... I'm not doing very well. I think, you know, I think you need to come see me. So I don't know. So, you know, the clinic lets me have uh, like a catheter, have a line in patients so that I can manage their pain. And don't even
2: bring her in for the aesthetic part and say, what do you think? And I remember, you know, I was like, ah, it's fine. And she said, no, 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 you got to you know, shave this part. I mean,
3: in. my job is to make sure that things are thorough and there's nothing, there's no stone left unturned, including the aesthetic of something. So, but anyway, so Ken is like, I don't know what he did. I gave myself a bunch of this and this and that, and this and this and that, and he's like shivering and vomiting, and he's got a fever, and I'm like, oh, I'm, <laughs> maybe have COVID. <laughs> So long story short, it we don't know he we, we don't know what the, he did to himself, but, um, but
2: but when you look at this, it explains it. But so after two treatments, like full of white cells, yeah, I like you can see wide open the red blood you know, cells
3: separation of, um, of 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 the, of like the red here. cell. Um,
0: um, that is but, that is a wild transformation. We really need to get those yeah. photos from you. Put them in the show notes yeah. because yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we need people to see yeah, how powerful I, that is. I have
3: it from the Dropbox, so I'll afford that to you. But, um, but the you,
0: scary it. thing is,
2: I'm looking through it and I'm like, "What the hell is that?" There's a giant parasites all through in the red blood cells.
3: Right? you, you can see it, I mean, you can't see. Yeah, oh wow! It yes. It go? I mean, a but, ton.
2: Usually, you gotta like search and search and search, but um, you know, this like, to the this, like, big thing sitting there. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, so, it looks like babesia to me, but we keep
0: coming up negative. But. So
3: we this so those
0: are parasites inside the cells. Inside the cells? That's what we're it's seeing, right? Cell. Yeah. Wow. So
3: this leads us to you know now we're kind of in this place where we're doing a deeper dive on on Ken's health because we learned a lot in the last
2: yeah months. and and it kind of happened when, when i got busy i stopped doing all my treatments stopped doing you know just basic maintenance stuff and uh stopped doing peptides that i would do you know at least three times a week um and then you start feeling bad so then you really don't do treatments it's harder and then it just Hit me. I'm just like, I'm not feeling well. And this, I'm surprised I was able to you well, know, yeah.
3: actually, you know, I remember in, and you can comment on this, but when you came back, you went, you had some very tough days, you had some anxiety. Um, you had some really severe anxiety, so you were pushed back into some old symptomology. Um, and you, you know, you've really been working through it. So it's been kind of a little bit of a relapse
2: for you. Yeah, no, it, it has. And so I, I was in denial for like a few months mm-hmm. and then I'm like, I think it's come back, you know, and I, I don't even think you ever get rid of it. I think you suppress it, you know, kind of like Epstein-Barr and, you know, and the herpes viruses and I stopped doing what I should be doing. And And then
3: the other bad habit that Ken has is that he stays up all night long and works and works and works and works and
2: works and works 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 works. for two days, two
3: days, you know, and, um, and so, you know, and when we and and so part of my role with him as an advocate is like, look, Kent, you know, I get that you have this much to do and I get that, you know, you have to make an impact especially now we need all to make a bigger impact with what's going on in the world. And I said, but you, you're not going to save time by using all the time, like you're gonna die, you know? And so I've been kind of an intervention in his survival system and, you know, reminding yeah, him I've always that been he's a, human a and that he wants be a hum- human being. I don't person. know, I
2: guess I'm very geeky and like I'll start getting into research because need needs more research and go on the rabbit hole. And all of a sudden, the light, you know, the sun's coming up, you know.
3: Yeah. And and it's understandable because you're very passionate. And that, I guess, leads me to, you know, look, you always wanted to be a doctor. You know, you didn't necessarily want to be a doctor for the reasons that you are doctor today so it's interesting to me that was
2: more of a joke but
3: but it is interesting because the progression of yourself as a human being in your career in relationship to your own health journey like how did that transform for you in terms of your contribution and in terms of who you are today oh well I
2: i think if i and this is what i was in the back of my mind i was like i can't stand living like this but i have this glimmer of hope that if I this is going to help me at some point and I would have been treating Lyme patients I would have just kind of oh yeah they're just you know not so and stuff I could have been very much the doctors that we hate you know
0: well you refer to yourself. thank god you're not though is what I have to say because I yeah. just want to I just want to chime in you you both are being so humble right now Dr. Holter we've heard about you since we started Tick boot camp in fact one of our favorite people Danny Tiger has had radical transformations and is feeling so much better after treating at, you know, at the Holtorf Medical Center. So I mean, thank God, unfortunately, you had to go through this horrible journey, but now you're helping people get their lives back through your clinic. And it's really cool to see Daisy, who is one of our our favorite guests we've ever had on the podcast and one of our most popular guests we've ever had on the podcast, be there to help you along in this journey as well. I mean, the two of you are such powerhouse individuals. And I think people are going to really love hearing this, this combination of you two together to keep you and your health in check Dr. Holtoff and keep people like Danny Tiger and others in the podcast in a proper path to healing and and health so I just wanted to interject and and thank you both for everything you've done awesome
2: she spoiled me I don't want to see a patient without her and like she'll finish my sentences and I think we should give what do you think of this like yes that's what I was going to say you know so she's She's really great, knowledgeable, um, and able to. It's hard to keep me on track and uh, and you know, do all the little things like you know actually let people know what they're supposed to be taking, you know and things like that. We've
3: worked really well together because yeah. I can write protocols from his methodology. I understand. I mean, I I have as a, an advocate have been able to do that with a handful of doctors and. And I have to say, I feel very fortunate that the doctors that I do work with like Kent really do trust me, really do know that I medically, I'm very savvy so that I can you know, support their vision. And so that's been wonderful, but it's also really been wonderful to be part of, of Kent's recovery journey for him, because he needs to be optimized in order for for him to be able to do what he needs yeah, to do. Yeah, because I I and,
2: push it. I, I'm you know, as soon as, So I started treatment like seven days ago. I'm already feeling so much better. And what do I do? Also, I stay up for two days, he, he, you know?
3: He doesn't know, you know, how not to be bankrupt in his own energy system. And it's habitual and he's been doing that his whole life. So yeah. part of the rehabilitation for a patient like this is, to teach them that they actually have to have a savings accounts of energy and um to manage that. and and then there's a anglais There's a haphazard quality to, Kent's way of managing his own care, because he knows everything, you know, Kent and I both as patients, we have tried everything, you know, there isn't anything we haven't tried ourselves that we haven't, like, if we're going to help people with antisenescence therapy, then we're going to, you know, go through antisenescent therapy. And so ultimately, you know, he could have a table full of a ton of crap and wake up in the morning and just like, I'm going to take this, 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 and that, and then say, you're feeling good today. What did you do? I don't know, you know, and unfortunately so many Lyme patients do this where they, you know, they've seen 10 doctors in the last 10 months and they have protocol one through 10 on the counter and they haven't even bought stuff on protocol 11 because they don't know what it is and they haven't researched it. And then they don't have, there's no method to any of it. And then, you know, there's a lack of rigor, there's a lack of consistency and there's a lack of methodology and even for someone who knows because he's a doctor you know on the front lines taking care of people it's easy to let go of of all of that yeah stuff. but
2: it's also you can see pain when you feel bad and also when you feel good i got take advantage of that you know and so yes, when you stay up with all the in, yeah. and you know it works in the, in the long run <laughs> but it's like you know i tell people exercise eat well like i'm I'm passionate about exercise. I exercise every four months for eight minutes, rain or shine. So I don't want to overtrain. I've seen people overtrain. I'm protecting against that.
3: So I know there's some like special questions that we ask, or maybe there's more things that you guys want yep. to ask that if,
2: you didn't ask. Or... I just want to mention one thing with the, with the heart thing, because... That was the thing I could not tolerate. And, uh, and then so, you know, the cardiologist said, maybe in 10 years you can get 10% better with rigorous cardiac rehab. I'm like, no, I'm not, that's not enough. And so I do all these peptides and treatments and within feel better in six months. And then in about a year, just over a year, I walk in the office upright and get an echo. And he's like, that's weird. I didn't think the fibrosis could reverse. Did he even ask me what I did? No, <laughs> he didn't care. Um, and I'm like, okay, thank you. You know, um, but did he you
3: sign a release to say that you, you know, spontaneously healed? And
2: he oh yeah. He said, well, I don't, I don't believe in that. So you think it's
0: a miracle, is that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But this is this is where I think it's so important, and we always express to people you have to have hope, right? Because certain doctors may say, you're going to be sick forever. You're never going to feel better. But I think we need to continue to have hope because there is something out there that can help us. And the more hope we have and the more things we continue to do, the better we're going to feel. And overall, we're going to make gains in our health, right? And I just don't want to lose sight of, I mean, we are so appreciative, Dr. Holtor, for all you do for the community. And and we want to thank you for sharing your story because it is really powerful, everything you've gone through and overcoming your journey. And now with the help of Daisy, but I do, Rich is going to jump in after after I finish his question, but I really want to focus on your, your clinic and how you're helping people as well at the end of this interview because, I mean, you really are changing lives and saving lives through the Holtorf Medical Clinic, and you're doing some really cool, powerful stuff and research with, with all kinds of different things. You talked about peptides, uh, the endocrine system, hormones, et cetera. So if you could just quickly touch on that and how you're helping people now in the chronic illness community and the Lyme community.
2: Yeah, and, you know, we started um, some... You know FDA trials uh, as well to try to get this more mainstream, but it really found that medicine moves very slow. And uh, we actually have a article on our our nonprofit, National Academy of Hypothyroidism, nayhypothyroidism.org. But someone hacked all our sites, but we're fixing those. But it says people would say, if this is so great, why doesn't my doctor know about it? And so it goes through and it was even like L.A. Times and the papers like doctors, you know, uh, annals of internal medicine showed that most doctors are practicing 20 years behind what's available in medical research. Now, OK, yeah, they don't read medical research. They may read an abstract that a, that a drug rep brings in. But they found the biggest reason for it taking so on takes on average 17 years for a proven new therapy to get accepted to mainstream medicine. And again, it takes 17 years, unless there's a, uh, it's a a drug and has a sales force. And and they found the biggest resistance was, if you give a doctor, here's 50 studies showing what you're doing isn't optimal, there's a better way to do it. They discount it. They go, oh, my patients are different. I don't like that study. Um, And, but also, so I used to get very mad at the doctors, but they're in a system that doesn't allow them to do anything. Like for them, a Lyme patient is a nightmare because they got to keep a quota. They, uh, you know, they're you know bogging down their system. They're just getting frustrated. You know, I think they said a doctor will interrupt the patient like, hey, how are you feeling within 10 seconds? Um, but, you know, they're graded on how cost effective. And what does that mean? It means, don't do any labs, don't make diagnoses. See you know, patient every 15 minutes. Um, and so they're in a system that I, if they see any complex illness, they're going to turf them. And so you're going to get, oh, you're going to go a neurologist you're to go to a, go to a uh, you know cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, you're going to go you know, to all these different groups, but they're not going to put anything. They're going to do their little thing that they do. They're gonna yes do a colonoscopy and a scope. Well, you're fine. there, you know and uh, and you're just you, you can't. They don't put it together, and it's yeah. all connected.
3: Art of referral. So yeah. Dr. Altov,
1: I think there's two different lines that we should probably explore here together, just to give folks some insight into how to best work with their primary physician, right? Because most folks who are, um, who are going to be dealing with Lyme disease are going to have to get the most out of the current medical system, and they're going to have to know how to work with a primary care physician. So what recommendations would you have for folks that would allow them to get the best outcome when they're working with someone who is working with an insurance system and only have 15 minutes to diagnose and treat the patient? It's essentially an impossible
2: task. Yeah. Um, I like, I tell people to stick with their doctor if they'll work with other doctors, Um, but you get us more time, they're usually not interested. But if a doctor says, I don't know, stick with them. Mm -hmm. And we found the the less a doctor knows, usually the more adamant they're right. Um, And so unfortunately, this whole insurance model, Mm And it's so bureaucratic and you know, so much money goes, or you look at labs, like to, to go to uh, Quest or LabCorp, if a patient has insurance, they don't cover it, they'll charge them $171 for a TSH. Now, if they go through our office and we bill it, we, we don't charge up you know, um, any labs, it's $19. But I can get it now, I found out, for 75 cents. So how much you think they're paying for that test that they're charging 175 for? Uh, probably a nickel, you know?
3: But I think it's also really important for people to educate themselves. Like for example, my father-in-law who lives in Glencove, right? He has a lot of, I mean, he probably has Lyme disease. I've talked to him about this multiple times and here his you know, daughter-in-law is Lyme advocate. And, um, and yet, you know, they... Somebody did a Western blot on him. Obviously, it was inconclusive. um But like one of the one of the things that's disturbing, he's diabetic. He's had all kinds of issues. It's like he has elevated T. He's an elevated TSH. Nobody's done. A, nobody's done any further thyroid studies on this person who has metabolic disorder. <laughs> like, you know,
2: that's it's, it's just, crazy. It like... If a primary care sees a, a TSH of <laughs> yeah. ten, they send him to endocrinologist. Like, just. Treat it, you know. Yeah,
3: or we're talking about like a TSH of like 5.5. They say that it's normal. It's you know what crazy. I mean? So like the
2: they're pituitary pre- sees the most thyroid. If it wants more thyroid, you're not getting any. And I, I really have a big issue with pediatricians. And you look at obese children, they'll have a high TSH, but they go, Oh, if you lose the weight, that will come down. And it does you know, part with the inflammation, but the kid's not going to lose weight with a low thyroid. And what's the chance of a obese kid going to be an obese adult? uh, And you got self-esteem issues Mm -hmm. and, you know, other problems. It's it's criminal.
3: These are the things that I think patients can educate themselves about. You know, they don't necessarily need to go outside the box and, you know, they can... They can request, you can request a complete thyroid panel. End of story, you know, and and inform yourselves about just conventional labs within the the system. What is it that's not being done? Ask for all of your results, take them home, study them, you know, understand what it is that you're getting and that you're not getting.
2: It's a daunting task. It's a daunting
3: task, but it's doable. And many people out there are smart and, and they don't have the education. You know, and, one of my doctor
2: will just intimidate them, and, and they stop the, being doctor yeah, Google. Don't
3: ask questions. But you know, one of my passions is to educate the world at large, and you know, the community at large, not just Lyme patients, because Lyme patients are more, more, more savvy, typically way more savvy than the average patient. But nowadays, everybody needs to be educated. We need to learn what we don't know, so that we can be part of our own solutions it
2: can be part of a greater solution it's totally true but most people it's too overwhelming and like you know when i go to parties now i have to bring lab slips because everyone's like (laughs) and so many people are sick it's like i'm sick my you know sister's sick my wife and they're asking all these questions and then they're like well my doctor says i don't have that well how's that working for you you know and i used to fill out a lab slip there but i found the majority never followed through, so I
1: don't, don't do that one yeah. yeah, yeah. So, that Don't we really just have an acute care system at this point as we move toward a managed care system? And I can tell you that I'm old enough to have been, you know, a patient under under the pre-managed care system, the pre, yeah. you know, Bill Clinton uh, presidential administration. And the quality of care that I had received during the early part of my life was substantially different than the quality of care I've received since then. And I think that's because we made a policy decision, or at least elected officials made a policy decision, that what we were going to do is we were going to open up the system to a larger number of people, and we were going to turn the system into an acute care system, not a chronic care system. And as a result... The only way that you can truly get the care that you need if you have a chronic disease is to either follow the model that Daisy was just advocating for, which is to become an educated um, uh, patient or to step out of the system and work with people who are not working within the traditional system. If you don't take one approach or the other, I think you're right. It is impossible. You're not going to get better because this is purely an acute care system. Give me your reaction to that.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's changing, but in general, people didn't want to spend, they don't think they should spend money on healthcare. Um, and you know, I have insurance and I get it. You have insurance, but what does it get you? Um, and unless it's cosmetic. But you know, I I did, I was really into healthcare reform and put together. Um, you know, whole healthcare reform thing, did a lot of interviews, and in U.S. News and World Report accepted it for publication, but then, but edited it and everything, and then pulled it the last 10 minutes, oh. but, and then I was trying to get a letter to someone in Congress or something, End up getting to Paul Ryan, and they, they have me sign a thing that I won't quote him, and then he sends me back a letter, well, I read your proposal, it's very interesting, um, but Would never happen because do you know how
1: many people are slurping off the trough of healthcare? You know. Well, you know, so the so the argument that we've heard from some of the folks in our community is that we need to move closer to a um to a to a um a a system like the British system or the Israeli system or you know, some of these other systems. And what we what we or the Canadian system, what we found is when we've interviewed people from Israel and we've interviewed people from the UK and we've interviewed people from Canada and Australia, that the system is actually worse, that it, that, it, that, that the, the people who have Lyme disease who are in some of these, you know, these government run programs have to step out of the system even more quickly than we have to in the US because, because the, the managed care that's available in, in those public systems is even worse than what we have here. And the only way that you're going to get treatment is stepping out of the system. So it's not to move further towards um you know these government run programs, but it's actually to yeah, become either a more if you
2: break a leg or something simple. But if you have complex illness, forget it. But it's interesting how we think we're the free market um uh you know system and things like people like Sweden are socialist. It's actually the opposite. We are the least free market. How? Uh, tell me how you can negotiate a price of your meds. How you can negotiate the price of your care. These like uh, Sweden, they offer universal care, but you have copays. You have all these decisions. You're involved with. Hey, I want this drug. You can get it, but you have to pay. You know more. Um and we have no such incentives anymore. Like my brother's on Medi-Cal. Uh, he I go and picked up some of his meds and I had like trazidone or was taken for sleep for a while. Uh like mine was like $47. His was zero, 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 zero. You know, and uh and he takes the ambulance as an Uber. Yeah. And
3: yeah, you know, I because I grew up I grew up in a, in a country, actually, that is, I think, successful, the most successful when it comes to socialized or, you know, nationalized health, which is France, um, because, but not for the types of illnesses that we're talking about.
2: Chronic like, illnesses, So right? my
3: sister, you know... They
2: have more free market system inside of that.
3: Correct. They do more than any other country, you know, having lived in London, having lived in Italy, Um,
2: and you have to pay for your,
3: not as good, but, but in France there is, and my, and my sister and my mom, you know, both had cancer and it's really, they handle cancer patients incredibly well in France. I have to say, um, hundred percent covered, but the Lyme care is, you know, it, it doesn't exist. You know, it's, people are forgotten once again. Um, and you know, it, 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 uh, and Dr. Klinghardt, who's also a good uh, um, collaborator and 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 peer and um, wonderful person that we both work with, we've both worked with, and you know, he'll say all, every day, like, medicine is broken. Medicine is broken. It's broken. It's broken. And it is. It's it's really very broken. And it's more broken today than it's ever been.
2: So it's, it's getting worse.
3: Yeah, it's getting worse, so it's it's very difficult. This is a really difficult, but,
2: topic. yeah. So, we started a program where, um, you know, treating vets for free. And, uh, and the first vet, it was, it, they tend to be um uh, special forces. This guy was a combat controller, um, and he basically had traumatic brain injury, uh, PTSD, uh, he had a uh, rod in his leg and he had allodynia which is you can't even touch the skin uh it's just so painful, like a sheet on it which i had for a while which i thought you know, similar with that you're like mm, a crazy you know but man it's it's horrible um and then um uh within so the yeah the first visit we got rid of his allodynia and oh, he couldn't even read a book by the way oh they found him I should kind of go all over the place but they found him face down with no pulse um, and the heart failure, kidney failure, they put him in an induced coma, said he's probably not going to make it. So it, he had been for like eight years in and out of the VA system and, and all that. So I don't think they came to us somehow, but it was like we started and we say we won't, we won't charge anything. Uh, again, by the first day, his allergy, and he couldn't flex his foot and he's just flexing it. And then uh, another uh, colleague like slaps his leg and his mom and me, I was like, what are you doing? And it didn't hurt, you know? And and then by the second visit, he was so much better. He could read a book from cover to cover, anxiety much less. He went on a camping trip and being special you on know, a camping trip no sleeping bag, you know, and just turned his life around. And so then someone heard about this and then a director heard about it and said, I wanna do a documentary on this. And then he ended up getting funding for a 12 part series and distribution on like, I don't know, he names them all up, but like Hulu uh amazon prime uh blah blah blah, you know uh netflix no no not netflix i do not think yet but um and so we're working on that right now and treating all all these vets and they're, they're treated horribly and i and like i went to a party and this guy was a vet and he's getting divorced which is so common and then he says oh yeah the the va says nothing's wrong with me and i'm like um, you know, tell me your little, little bit of history, just very short. And I said, let me guess, you got that 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 that. And he starts crying. No one, how do you know that? And I said, that's what they all have. We go, how how do you know? The VA says it doesn't. You know that that, that my symptoms they've never seen it before. I'm like, oh my god, you know. And this is what we find though. I said, come in. We're not gonna we're not gonna charge you. They don't come in. You know, and I don't know if it's just like, hey, I want to tough it out or um, not trusting her, or I don't know. But um, yeah, we're in, in the, the interesting thing is we're finding all these things are basically uh, uh, have the same common underlying pathophysiology. You know, immune modulation is huge and mitochondria and you know, immunosinescence and, yeah. uh, and and all these things. And uh, like what you found with COVID, like 40% of uh, COVID, especially post-COVID patients have PTSD, you know? And it just affects it a little little differently. Or and they
3: have grain fog, you know, severe long COVID. And-,
2: and yeah, but that's not considered associated with it. You know, it's like...
1: So, Dr. Altaf, one of the things that we, you know, we deal with regularly on this podcast is uh, the frustration that patients have with the time it takes to be diagnosed with Lyme disease. Uh, and there are a lot of different theories about why it takes so long. It takes to, like 10 like, minutes. I'm sorry? 10 minutes. Well, yeah, well, it, it you know, and it and it didn't take you 10 minutes to diagnose yourself, which is sort of I, I think an important part of what we have to look at here. Oh yeah.
2: It's it's like and you go and you have the respected doctor, they go, or to show you we had one um, very high powered CEO in Orange County. I diagnosed with Lyme, he's doing much better. He goes to his doctor's doctor says, This is ridiculous. This is malpractice, there's no Lyme in California. And so he's calling, just panic. Well, like, what are you treating me with? Like, you're feeling better. I know, but it's not that. And he said there isn't any Lyme. He was adamant. And then about two weeks later, his dog gets totally sick. Brings him to the vet, and he, the vet says he's got Lyme disease. You know, and uh,
1: so there, so there is this political overlay that that makes it um, challenging to diagnose with Lyme. But let's I, I want to explore something else with you, right? Because Um, you were sick, right? You were sick for a long time. In fact, you were sick for your entire life. And um, despite being a brilliant man who graduated from some of the top schools in the country, who certainly wanted to make himself better, you weren't able to diagnose yourself. And how much of that was based on the failure of the educational system to give you the tools that you needed to properly diagnose yourself with Lyme disease?
2: Oh, great question. Exactly because being evidence-based, you go, but here's the standard. Do this two-tiered test, and if you're negative, well, that's not it, and there's really no chronic Lyme, and you're just told all these false statements to put it nicely, and so you don't think about it, but then as you get more and more and start reading more and more, and there's you know, and Infectious Society of America still doesn't agree there's chronic Lyme. There's post-Lyme syndrome. Well, what about all these studies that, you know, they look and they find active, uh, you know, Lyme in in the body when they have post-Lyme syndrome? Or, you know, McDonald, who was head of the uh, Harvard Brain Bank, biopsied tons of Alzheimer's patients and found you know, basically Lyme disease and the majority of them, they wouldn't let him publish it because it would cause too much panic and everything's so political. And I think that's everyone's scared to lose their job um, because he would have probably been
1: gone, you know, and it's... But the the political overlay is certainly a significant issue and we should explore that a little bit together, but that wasn't an issue for you. You were not politically limited in evaluating your own symptoms you weren't afraid to um, evaluate yourself to get to a proper diagnosis you simply couldn't think outside of the box because you were educated in a way that boxed you in and because you were in that box you couldn't diagnose yourself which makes it that much more difficult for well-intentioned doctors to diagnose third parties I mean if they just can't think outside of that box to, to diagnose themselves how are you going to diagnose patients who are certainly, you're yeah. certainly never and going to know as well as you know yourself. And you're certainly never going to know my, as, well and as and Plus else. they're relieved when they turn up negative. Now they don't have to do anything.
2: Um, but yeah, and so with me, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, I was told this and you want to believe it, you believe it. I'm evidence-based, I'm not going to. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you see more evidence. Someone says something and you're like, well, that's not what I was taught. And then you go do the research and you're like, damn, wait a minute, that guy was more than right, you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you find just in even old research, and that really, the, I think you can basically for two months, go to the old research and be a better specialist than the specialist, you know, not surgery, but like gastroenterology, I mean, they're just scoping people. That's where the money is. Like they just discovered probiotics as gastroenterologists. You know, endocrinologists. If you have an endocrinol an endocrine problem, yeah, try to get your endocrinologist to help you. Um, they're diabetes doctors that give insulin. Uh, OBs and I'm not trying to be disparaging, but they give birth control pills. They're supposed to be hormone experts. The, uh, mm-hmm. You know, they take out body parts. And we have found hiring doctors over the last, you know, 15, 20 years that it's, I'm depressed because more and more doctors, like, I don't like protocols, doctors love protocols, patients love protocols, Um, and we got to do more of them, but I'm not a protocol guy, but um, that they don't understand, doctors don't understand concepts. They're taught, and maybe it's that's how you know they're great book learners, great test takers. Is they want to memorize and give me an algorithm, but that's also how they work because you have to go through an algorithm. Or if you screw it up, you're gonna get brought in, uh, brought in front of the uh, board of the hospital. Insurance is gonna cover it. Da da da. So they're mm-hmm. made to think like that. And it's their livelihood, you know, if they switch, they, they're gonna, you know, get less money.
1: Um, But there's also this balance of, of, of working with generally accepted medical practices, and then knowing when you're supposed to determine whether or not your client, or I'm sorry, your patient is, mm -hmm. um, is um, someone who is outside of the bell-shaped curve is somebody who is who is who is um I think they're inside the bell-shaped yeah. curve that has been misdiagnosed for years mm-hmm. okay and but, are, but from a when you're a clinician aren't you supposed to be using generally accepted medical practices and then if you find that you have an outlier then you should have the freedom to work with somebody who's an outlier and I guess we get to find outliers. Um, in different Every ways, but an outlier
3: work with is an outlier.
1: Okay, well, I don't then, think they're an outlier really. Um, well, they're
3: in within the bell curve; they're an outlier. They don't fit. I mean, there is. I don't know single people quiet. like
2: them, but they just don't deny it, and it's like you know. And and they have the problem is they go to their doctor, and says, "Oh no, that's ridiculous." Um, Not and then, just their
3: doctors; they go back to their family. Oh, their
2: family and say, "Oh, this black doctor." And their families,
3: who is are he? Going to have to undo all of the conversations and education. Yeah. I mean, as an advocate, my job is to educate educate the family so that the patient. You know, the client can get some peace in relationship to their treatment protocol or to their, you know, course of treatment ahead because they're going to be doubted so much that then they're going to continually And, and, they're, doubt and
2: themselves. they're going to break and they're, they're, they're spending, you know, money. And so that gets re- resentful. And once you speak to I've so many patients, is it, I've been to the best doctors, you know, it's chief of staff over here. People always go, I'm going
1: to the Mayo Clinic. I'm like, see, so, uh, see you, you know? you. Well, uh, so you, you cited the work of Dr. Alan McDonald, who's one of our favorite uh, doctors. Uh, we've interviewed him several times. And one of the things that Dr. McDonald's argued uh, is that we need a divorce from Lyme. And his argument is that by using this term Lyme disease, we're putting ourselves in a position where we have a disease without a definition. And because we have a disease without a definition, we start to have some challenges of even defining the problem. One of the things that I was thinking of we, when you I were... think
3: we agree with that.
1: Yeah.
2: We like to
3: rebrand and,
2: Lyme. and when we say, when I say Lyme disease, yeah. it's kind of like Lyme disease. What is it really? We may be treating something very different. And there's so many infections coming out that- don't come up on blood tests and,
1: mm-hmm. you know- so. Well, but you're not even testing for it, right? I mean, it's-
3: Right,
1: I mean- so, so, Yeah, so, you know, when, well, when we're, but let, so let's say with this this chronic Lyme versus the post-treatment Lyme syndrome uh, divide, right? Um, isn't the real challenge that we don't have a definition for Lyme disease that we, I've had some doctors cr- slap me across the hand and say, Richard, Lyme disease is Borrelia. And then I've had other doctors say to me, it's a polymicrobial infection, right? And we, so we have this multi-defined disease. And then couldn't we have someone who actually has chronic Lyme disease where they have active infections, but it's not the one infection they're looking for. And because it's not the one infection that they're looking for, now they're arguing that you have post-treatment Lyme syndrome rather than chronic Lyme disease. And are we in some cases really just looking at the same thing differently and defining it yes. differently because we don't yeah. have a consistent definition of That's what I
2: was going to say.
3: It's
1: not, it doesn't make any light. sense. Yeah. And it
3: doesn't
1: matter what you
2: call it. And we Once really... Finish. Like we often won't even check for infections. We'll check the immune system, other markers. Then we because a lot of people won't do the test. They oh, I don't have that. I don't have that. C D 57. And, and and uh but you won't get the activity. But, uh, um, uh, yes. but anyways, but and mm-hmm. then show them this is screwed up and they'll say, I've been everything's been normal. Yeah, what does your doctor check? The CBC, a chem panel, cholesterol. And they go, oh, your cholesterol's high. And just my- And, and that's give them it. a statin, and they think, oh, my cholesterol's so low. Would you just increase the mortality of that person? Increase their risk for heart failure? Uh, increase their risk for yeah? Yeah, I mean we um, have this
3: great guy, yeah, Alzheimer's. You know, Doctor Dan 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 Yen Goodnow, who does I don't know if you know about prodrome science, and you know he does this amazing. He wrote this amazing book on Alzheimer's disease, and you know how plasmologens essentially prevent all these neurological conditions and so he does this very interesting panel and you know he looks at people's you know everything in turn and he also looks at people's cholesterol levels and he anything that's below 200 cholesterol they're at risk for neurological diseases, for yeah, cancer, you'd be surprised. And these, all these doctors
2: That's consistent,
3: consistent, and then everybody's putting these people on statins because no, they're two hundred five or two ten, you know, and then they're dropping to one hundred fifty, and then you we tell them your cholesterol's too low, and they think we're crazy. It's well to show you there
2: was you know one study that showed they looked at people's cholesterol levels, uh, you know. Cholesterol, HDL, LDL, all the other other things, and fibrinogen. And if you had low fibrinogen, low risk for heart disease. Didn't matter how high your cholesterol was. High fibrinogen, uh, you know, high risk. No matter what your cholesterol level was. So, aren't we testing the wrong thing? You know. But there's a lot of money to be made in cholesterol, and it makes sense. See, people get it like, oh, the the you know the lipids you know basically collect on the uh on the vascular wall that's not what happens you know um
3: and they focus on the wrong thing you know i mean i mean we going not get into a whole nutritional conversation but you know people are they're being told to be you know to stop eating meat to stop eating you know that everybody has to be vegan now we all have and then, bugs because you and know next all, week it's gonna be
2: yeah.
3: and and you know and and nobody's allowed to eat you know, grass-fed butter anymore because you know you're gonna die. The high cholesterol. You should eat bugs. You should eat impossible burgers, and you know. And, and then everybody's the eating. Everybody's eating. You know, industrial seed oils, and you know. So it's
2: just. So the.
3: Oh yeah,
1: I, I think it's a nice transition to the last thing that I'd like to talk to you folks about. And you've been really, really kind with your time, and and, and we're going to uh, give you the opportunity to wind down. But there is one really important topic area that I'd like to explore with the two of you, and that is that is um, you know the 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 risk of Lyme disease, right? Um, General Stanley McChrystal, in his brilliant book Risk, defined risk as um, threat times vulnerability. And, and it's, it's one of the formulas that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and using during the course of this podcast, where we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 people per year being diagnosed with um, Lyme disease, and we have in excess of 2 million people suffering currently in the U.S., with uh, with chronic Lyme, it's probably higher, but at least diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. And we've we've seen some recent studies that are showing that at least one in every fifteen people in the world has Lyme disease. Right. So we're we're seeing these numbers explode. And so let's first talk about the definition, like you were saying,
2: mm-hmm. that.
1: Now, how many people have it? Right. And on a very narrow definition, of course, you're right, certainly in the one in 15 study, right, worldwide, right? Right. So let's first talk about the threat piece of this, and then we'll talk about the vulnerability piece of this. So, first of all, the the threat piece is we are more likely to come in contact with Lyme disease today than ever before. And we were debating a little about this offline about how uh, what is causing this increase threat in this risk formula and you know one of the one of the things we focus on in this podcast in the past is of course because of global warming the breeding window for ticks is extended and as a result of the breeding window being expanded there are just simply more ticks i'm not a big Proponent of that. I mean, I think it plays a part, but I think there's other things that play much bigger part. Well, so let's get to that, right? So so I, so I think it is clear and and and, and I think the entomologists are, are certainly certainly been able to uh prove with evidence-based research that there are more ticks, and there there is has been an expanded um uh environment that is that is um you know that is hospitable with- to yeah. ticks both north and south than there had been before. So there are certainly more ticks. But let's talk about some of the other things that we were talking about off, off, offline where you believe our exposure to Lyme disease is greater today than ever before.
2: Yes. And I, I do think it has to do with, yeah, you know, with, with the extended number of ticks are invading. And, but that's really pushed highly because it's the thing global warming global warming i'm more
1: worried about toxins
2: mm.
3: uh
1: than okay anything. but that's a but isn't that really a vulnerability issue yeah that might
3: be a vulnerability issues? issue let's, but we're,
1: let's let's focus if, let's focus on the threat meaning the likelihood of us yeah. coming in contact with the polymicrobial um disease first and i, and I do want to talk about vulnerability so, but let's talk about yeah. so, so we have
3: to we, go We have to go back to you know term once again a semantics conversation and we have to talk about tick borne versus vector borne which is what we were talking about before and how many vectors into the body are there so you know the only other really well known and I'm not going to only talk about Borrelia but the only other really well known spirochete is you know syphilis and so you know syphilis is known to be sexually transmittable Um, and you know there is no definitive And or really, nobody's fully stating that Lyme disease or Borrelia, and I mean, we can't, we've already talked about the difference between Borrelia and Lyme disease, so I'm going to leave that alone. But nobody's really saying, you know, outright that Lyme disease is sexually communicable. I think Lyme disease is sexually communicable. And if that's the case, that's a very well known vector, potentially a, a more threatening vector than tick borne.
1: Well, yeah, so and, and look, I, I don't think it's fair it's easy to say no one is saying that. I, I can tell well, you Dr. No Alan is, McDonald has. Alan McDonald,
3: uh, yes, I apologize. And you're absolutely right.
1: What are you saying? What?
3: So I, 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 made a, I made an incorrect statement, and that is that the statement that I made is no one is coming out and saying that Lyme disease is sexually transmissible because it's being said kind of more quietly in our inner circles because but the world no at large because do. i because because the world at large patients clients you know young people who are having sex and who are not necessarily using any kind of other protection because you know, they, because in some ways, HIV or other STIs don't seem threatening to them, you know, are getting tick-borne infections, you know, it's called vector-borne infections from having sex. It I, is happening.
1: So, so there's certainly some research that is suggesting that in the vaginal fluids and the sperm tests that have been done with one partner or the other who has been diagnosed with Lyme disease, it's substantially, it's, it's very, very highly likely that when they're testing the, 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 the fluids of the other partner, the other partner is testing positive. But have you noticed that they haven't followed up with those studies and see what the real transmission rate is?
2: They don't want to know. Right. So, Um, and
3: that's where we're splitting hairs. Like that's why I said no one. And I'm, I was wrong to say that you're absolutely right to call me out on that. But,
1: but, and, but they said there, look, there is some debate about that, right? So for example, the Dr. Fallon had argued that, you know, it, when, when he looked at that study um, that the reason why the, both the male and the female partner were, were in that study, were both likely to have. Um, you know the bacteria, the Lyme bacteria, really in there in their, in their uh, fluids, is because they're living in tick endemic communities, and they're likely they both have been bitten by by ticks. Is that right? Is it wrong? I don't know, but it's also, it is certainly one of the things that we have to consider um from the vulnerability. What standpoint.
3: about like you know two young people who hook up for ten months and you know have
2: and and like never been so,
3: in any kind of tick. You like know,
2: both the, my, myself and my girlfriend or wife, Libby, uh, have Lyme disease. I blame her that she gave it to me, you know, then she blames me. Well, that's kind of weird. We're in a state that doesn't have Lyme. Well, you know, and, but I, I think too, kind of with this um, in utero, is that I think a lot factor. more people had it, but now with all the other. Environmental things—it's
1: coming out much more. Okay, so let's let's get to vulnerability. I mean, I think there was a fourth prong that we talked about that I'd like to just touch on, which is uh which is blood transfusions, right? At least here in New York, uh, you have to fill out a questionnaire about whether or not you have been diagnosed with uh, a tick-borne illness before you can donate blood. I understand that's not something that's national, but here in New York, we have to. Yeah, do but that.
2: they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. You know. And because I the doctor told them they don't have it, even if they have symptoms, and they very well may be asymptomatic. It's, and it's But at like, least we're
1: asking here in, in New York, right? I mean, at least the questions being asked so that people who have been diagnosed can check the box and, and, and not diagnose, not be not be donating. Obviously, ask, if, if people like have for, not been given a diagnosis, that's not going to help.
2: Yeah, for like risk, have you had any homosexual interactions? I mean, the you know basically people saying no when they have is huge you know and uh and and so i think you I mean, know that's a start but but like and they don't like babesia in the um uh, blood uh you know, they weren't even checking for it, and the tests yeah. are terrible now what about the spike protein all, on all the well, blood
3: well
1: uh, now our blood's totally contaminated but so let's get to vulnerability because I know you're excited okay. to talk about that. So, why are we more? Can I, can
3: I just add before we move to that in terms of the uh, vertical transmission and you yes. basically, you know, we I've worked with a lot of different OBs. Now, there are Lyme literate OBs and there are not Lyme literate OBs. And I've worked with clients that are pregnant and have positive eugenics, um, IgM. IgG variant, you know, and the OBs don't have, you know, and a Lyme literate doctor might say, you and I thought with this before, you know, hey, you know, you're pregnant, you should, would be probably a good idea to protect the offspring to be on antibiotics throughout the pregnancy. Well, the OBs will say that it's dangerous. They can't do it. It's not okay. Don't do it. Don't do it. These are things we encounter on a regular
2: basis. Yeah. Or you think a threat, like okay our family we weren't campers like we hated the outdoors we're in california um like you know what was our threat and everyone had it Um, well because
1: because 70 percent of the people who contract Lyme disease get it in their own backyard right The, 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 the 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 bias is that you have to be an outdoorsy person or you have to be a camper or you have to be a hunter and that's simply not true the overwhelming majority of people who have come in contact with ticks come in contact with ticks in their backyard and i've shared with people on this podcast that i've been bitten by a tick every year for the last five years at least one that i've discovered biting me all of which came from my backyard or one of my dogs that came in the house from our backyard and 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 sat on it. In yeah, so, California where and they're cats. saying there is no Lyme disease. Well, but but we know that's not true, right? We, cats, we know you
2: know, disease. Flea, Bartonella,
3: Bartonella flea, you know.
2: Okay. Like cats,
1: mosquitoes. Yeah. Well, Bart- Bart- again, Bart- I, so let's talk about vulnerability now, right? Because this is this is another piece of it, right? Because we do know that humans have been coming in contact with the Lyme bacteria, at least again, Borrelia For um, for as long as there have been humans, you know, Doctor Bill, for example. What's that? The Iceman. Right. Them. So we know at the Ice man who was 5,300 years old had had, uh, you know, yeah. had oh. Lyme disease, but it actually predates uh, the Ice man. So which suggests that because humans have been coming in contact with this bacteria for as long as we have been, we do have immune defenses to it. Right on the virility scale, it's pretty low and we should be able to protect ourselves at least against this one Bacteria. I think it changes when we are looking at a polymicrobial disease. Which let's put that aside for now. Mm -hmm. But but as it as it relates to the vulnerability, we are more vulnerable today than we've ever been before. Some of it is lifestyle. Some of it is diet. I mean, we have all those. So let's let's build that out together. Why are we more vulnerable to this uh, to uh, suffering? from a chronic disease that traditionally we've had the ability to manage as part of our microbiome? Uh,
2: Well, yeah, my thought again is I think stress and the levels are just out of control right now, all the toxins and it ends up lowering immunity and that's what it comes out. So I think most people that get Lyme never have symptoms, especially years ago. Uh, because they have good immune systems and all that, and only had the vaccine debate. But you know, it's like we check natural killer cell function, and people got vaccinated. Every time they got vaccinated, went lower and lower. Mm-hmm. And now they're finding like the derms are saying huge melanomas in young people, the OBs like weird cancers, cervical cancers, um, and uh, it's it, it, it's a problem. And, you know, we're big on the immune system, immune dysfunction. We figure when we fix that, many of these things fix themselves. Um, Yeah,
3: I mean, I think it's really interesting what you're saying. And I've been thinking about this more and more. And I've been working with a number of practitioners. Right now, there's so much going on in terms of, uh, you know, um, circadian rhythm health. Um, circadian rhythm dysfunction and deuterium and deuterium depletion. And if you listen to Stephanie Senneth and you listen to James Leff and there's, you know I'm currently doing um, a course with the Dutch university and I work with this, uh, another wonderful ND by the name of Petra Dorsman, and their conversations are very much about, you know how are we depleting deuterium and how are we no longer denaturing ourselves in human you know form and in, in our humanity and unfortunately we're living in a culture you know where there is just so much focus and emphasis on denaturing ourselves more and more and you know getting back to you know sunlight you know we we everybody's you know covering themselves with toxins so they don't get any sun you know, and there's all this, you know, propaganda about how, you know, healthy food is not healthy and all this stuff. So we are becoming denatured and we are becoming more toxic. And, and we know, we know, because when we see people who have high levels of heavy metals, um, glyphosate, we see all of this, they have much higher levels of bacteria you know, and these things polarize to each other. And
2: then you got the, you know, microbiome, of course, and all of this stuff. And,
3: and then, you know, patients in general, are like, well, I don't want to deal with this detoxing thing. I just t- treat my, my infections. We're like, well, we can't actually treat your infections if we don't treat your toxin load, because you'll never actually unravel this Rubik's cube that you have put together, you know, by being on this planet for 35 years. And and this is a concept that's very difficult to help people understand so with cancer patients you know more and more deuterium depletion could actually be one of the most and only treatment course that you go through for long term where you could eradicate cancer fully and there's
2: so many things like that and they're all you know obviously you know basically multifactorial and you look at something like that, that no one's really heard about and how important it is. Then you got a thousand things like that. And it's just adding up, adding up, adding up. One more, you know, yeah. one more thing. Um, or it's like, like we treat ALS and we've had ALS patients come in wheelchairs, so they're jogging and they go back to the neurologist and they go, oh, it must've been a misdiagnosis or a miracle, you know. Um, I haven't seen one who
1: hasn't had Lyme
3: or who
1: hasn't had a high level of toxicity. So Dr. all. I'm gonna ask you one final question. You've been very, very generous, both you and Daisy with all of your, your expertise and your brilliance, uh, but um, I, I'd like to talk to you about the HPA axis. Um, I, know you, I know you know a great deal about the HPA axis and you've written a great deal on it. Um, can you give us your thoughts on the impact that um, stress is having on the HPA axis and the impact that stress is having first on um, cortisol receptors, the impact that the stress is having on, on, on the uh, adrenaline, and what impact that's having on our ability to heal when we are managing uh, the Lyme, um, the polymicrobial disease that we call Lyme disease? Uh, yeah, uh,
2: good, good question. So I did a review. A uh, while ago now, um, HP axis dysfunction and chronic kink syndrome fibromyalgia looked at all the research and found that when they did appropriate testing, like the central test that would you know, stimulate and da da da, but the standard ACH stimulation test is ridiculous. It, it's like hitting someone with a hammer and going, yeah, pain? But um, and uh, found that the overwhelming majority, 90% had um, HP axis dysfunction with chronic syndrome fibromyalgia. When we found that the fibromyalgia patients had more um, hypothalamic dysfunction and the chronic fatigue syndrome patients had more pituitary okay. dysfunction, makes sense of the pain center and stuff there. But it, it is a problem. I think sometimes maybe a little too much emphasis because it, it's all the hormones and it's you know it's pineal, Hypothalamic, pituitary, then all these hormone dysfunctions, um, including, you know, thyroid, low, low thyroid with low TSH and high T4, which everyone says, oh, that's high thyroid. You know, that's what depressed patients that they'll have low, low normal TSH, high normal T4. And the doctor's like, see, they're hypothyroid Then they give them T4, say, see, it didn't help. it um, uh, It wasn't hypothyroidism. Well, let's look at the STAR report. Largest study ever done on antidepressants showed that T3 was a better antidepressant, regardless of their levels, than antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Um, Another study, 135 treatment-resistant bipolar patients. They tried, on average, 14 different medications with no response. They gave them high-dose T3, didn't matter what their levels were. 80-plus percent responded and... I think it was twenty-five or thirty percent total resolution of symptoms, you know. And now, mm-hmm. and with the adrenals, we have found that we don't do a lot of specialized, but um, we found because if you give like epitalon and pineal peptides, that it's interesting. Uh, like with a rat, you can even they took out their pituitary gland, gave them epitalin, and their thyroid levels normalized. You know, so and that kind of. Fixes itself, and but if you see also, let's say someone has uh, with stress, high ACTH, the body's pumping out corticotropin releasing hormone, and you'll see patients with a high ACTH but a low cortisol, and what that tells you is they have high CRH, which is a huge stimulator of mast cell, um, and so it kind of goes around and around, so. We find if you have that, you want to give them a little cortisol um, uh, to to lower that until you get things under control. But yeah, adrenal. People think cortisol is bad, but it really helps you deal with stress. Like if you have, and depends if you're totally relaxed and in good health, you can have low cortisol and be fine. If you're in the ICU and you have a normal cortisol level, you're going to die. You know and But I think it's just kind of also the stress patterns, the sleep patterns, we've screwed it up and and you get basically a flat line, you know, or Mm -hmm. you get peaks at the wrong time. Um, But that we find, I I think peptides are great for kind of fixing those, Um, but we'll use a little cortisol here and there uh, and adrenal supplements and and things like that. and uh, in fact, I think the adrenal supports are number one product. So mm-hmm. obviously, it's an issue. People wouldn't buy it if they didn't keep buying it and feel better. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's an issue. It's also kind of about testing. Um, you know, we'll just do a, a morning cortisol. The uh, Brazilian Journal of Infectious Disease showed that if a person who has a chronic infection has a morning cortisol less than twelve. There's like an 87% chance that they have adrenal dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll look at that some uh, occasionally we'll do, you know, like the saliva. So you can do it multiple times and and see what it is. But I find, you know, I don't want to get in that debate uh, because every test has its pluses and minuses, you know. and, but we'll, we we'll use it when, when we need it. I think it can send people astray sometimes. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I think it's an issue, but it's like people will put, so like adrenal fatigue, adrenal fatigue, which I, you know, you'll hear kind of, I'm nothing against chiropractic, but they'll use it a lot. So it got a bad name of just like kind of quackery and I was, uh, supposed to do a debate in the Journal of Endocrinology about is there adrenal fatigue, but I really blew it by giving all this information up front, and they're like, whoa, this is too pro, and he has too much fat, too many facts, I think, so Uh then they're like, no, we'll get someone else, Uh, but um, uh, it's an issue, as are all the hormones, and I mean that's the thing it's a multi system illness and the more we learn the more we realize we don't know you
1: know right. and, and 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 it's dangerous to segregate a system and focus on a system when it's a, a you know a a polymicrobial disease that's going to affect many many systems in different ways yeah. in different people and that's of course one of the challenges of life so let me ask you the final question so I can let you two folks go after again being so kind with uh, all of your information and experience. So Dr. up! if at the end of this um, podcast on the way home, when Daisy's driving you home, you discover that she has a tick biting her, what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to um, go on a chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: Um, well, you remove it as soon as you can. Um, and then I would almost always treat with triple antibiotics. Um, and... Uh, for an extended period of time, because I think it's kind of that risk-threat thing that, okay, well, what's the risk of taking antibiotics versus if you get chronic Lyme, you're not happy, you know? So uh, I am on the side of aggressive treatment, um, and I know that that's another very controversial area mm-hmm.
1: so what if if you were to diagnose uh, i mean if you were to recommend the um you said triple antibiotics would there be any other uh recommendations you would you would make for folks who would be taking those antibiotics to offset the impact that it, for example may have on on the person's gut health
2: oh yeah you got an hour you know so <laughs> yeah it's when i when i say things that i doesn't mean we're not doing a ton of other things it'd be You know, uh, peptides to uh, immune modulate, mitochondrial boosters like ozone. um, Yeah, probiotics, IgG orally. um, Yeah, maybe. Stem
0: cells. Yeah,
2: stem cells. I mean, all these things. So it's very individualized because you know I wish I could give everything to everyone, but um, you know that's not practical. But yeah, always not just take this. And we find, like, for instance, when we do use antibiotics now, that we can give much lower doses, like, for a shorter period of time. Um, and because if you have no immune system, you're going to have to take this for five years or whatever. But maybe three months would be fine, you know, when, when you get everything else working. But very good question. Um, and yeah, almost always we're doing a lot of stuff and we're, we're trying to get that plasmapheresis machine, which I love and, and, and yeah, and so what was in there, the doctor's like, this is heavy metals, it was a lot, um, and then these are, you know, organic toxins and these are mean complexes, I'm like, holy crap, you know, it's so much and that was just, you know, one and then an- another treatment, so we're just loaded with this stuff.
1: All right. So, Dr. Holtoff, can you please just share with our folks as we as we wind down uh, where they could get in touch with you if they wanted to work with you first in your medical practice? And I'd like you to talk a little bit about your your uh, your um, I don't know if it's a pharmaceutical company or a or a supplement company. I'd like you to define that as well because I think you've done some great work on both prongs. So, first, give the names of your of your of your companies, and then how folks could um, um, yeah. access. So- the so our
2: main clinic is Fulltorf Medical Group, uh and El Segundo. You know, we kind of treat everything that if a doctor can figure out, we'll, we'll treat it. We also do, you know, typical, uh, you know, it, it's funny how many people's lives we change with just giving a little thyroid. Or even Lyme patients who've been struggling, we've seen the best doctors and like, you know, your thyroid's really low. And they're like, oh my God, that was it, you know. Um, but so we treat a lot of stuff. Um, we're, uh, basically an immune modulatory clinic with love peptides. And that's, you know, kind of from my story, uh, love ozone. We use, you know, a lot of supplements as well. Um, you know, different medications. We're kind of getting into the, which transfers over to chronic illness is the longevity biohacking group, you know, stem cells. Um, and uh, you know um, what else do we do? I for, forget half the stuff all the time. But um, and, and that's a problem too. Like 85% of our patients don't know 85% of the stuff we do. And uh, and I go, oh I just got this treatment. Oh well, yeah we've had that for 15 years you know um, but uh, and then we uh, you know really being into peptides is just seeing the huge benefit, and then using on patients seemed a huge benefit. And we had uh, uh, originally 32 centers around the country with the fibromyalgia and fatigue centers. But that was my first taste of corporate medicine. And so it was a guy who was an entrepreneur in uh, the medical space. He had terrible fibromyalgia. and went to all the experts he could find, just of life, to be honest like he flies out to one place and the doctor won't come out of the room because he didn't get his check and he's like it's right there well no no we didn't in the fedex thing no 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 we didn't we didn't cash it so it doesn't count. i mean just the cruelty but he came out to our center and within a visit and then two visits he was dramatically better and said we need to bring this to the rest of the world and so uh Said, oh, this is great let's open all these centers. I learned that I hate managing uh you know other doctors and it's it it's it, it, it it's a pain but then uh they got funding and then so which came with that is a a board and they'd be saying these things like I'm like dude, this is not you know target this is a medical practice I mean there's like you don't have a Harvard MBA, you're just a doctor, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, and so I ended up leaving. I trained Dr. Title to take over. Um, and then the board fired the two people I started it with, and uh, within six months, they were out of business, you know. Um, but we thought we found the fatal flaw because the problem is, you have corporate centers, you have a doctor's working, and they, you know, it's it's hard work, and people say, Oh. You're in it for the money. If you're in it for the money, you don't want to be treating line. No. there's a lot easier ways to make money. Much easier. But so the doctors will kind of go, and then you can't, it takes a year to train a minimum. Uh, you know, try to train them, you gotta shut down the, the center. So we did, let's make franchises where they got a piece, you know, they have an incentive to stay around. But I found even with an the incentive, they you don't. Know, do they don't listen and they pay their franchise fee but then they're like no i don't want to do that like you're paying for the advice so anyways we uh let most of them go some bought out some we you know said bye we have one left in in atlanta um but uh uh so we're kind of i may join forum health um as kind of a uh you know, whatever, C-level thing and over, overseeing the clinical part. Um, and they're really into, I wouldn't have to manage. I'm a terrible manager. I am too nice. Uh, it drives me crazy. And when I kind of had to step back from patients to become a manager, You think, well, okay, I'm moving up. I hate this. <laughs> I want to see patients, you know. But, you know, how many patients can I, can I see? Um, so kind of for the greater good and that's what they're into is the greater good Which, uh, so we're really jiving with, with them so that may may happen soon and we're starting a training program uh, for doctors and then she's going to run the one for health uh, uh, coaches advocates. and advocates, advocates. Um, uh, so that's starting in hopefully February uh, we have the um, integrative peptides which is a supplement peptide company so people can get it on their own we record we want them to go through their doctor their doctor can get them a better deal um, you know and uh, so kind of an incentive to go see a doctor and chiropractors can uh, can use it I mean they're just exceedingly safe which, which is nice and uh, so we've been doing that that's been going well we just Keep running out of product uh, is the problem, and then we kind of have our. I wish I would have built it up more over the years, but you know the goal was with the National Academy of Hypothyroidism was to um, basically train doctors and cysticated patients on the way we practice medicine in this kind of practice thyroid treatment and diagnosis and treatment is wrong, and you have know, a couple of review articles that have 500 references but they're still TSH, dsH TSH, you know? And it's probably the worst tissue to look at, you know, unless you're totally healthy, have no stress, no toxins, no body infections. But other than that, it's a bad thing to, to look at. Um, started a biopharm company um, for all my sins, but uh, to do clinical trials and all these things. But we're always doing kind of, you know, pseudo clinical trials that are very safe. And, uh, I love coming up with new compounds. And, um, of course I take as much as I can to like, and do the toxicity studies right there, but it, they're shown to be safe anyways. But, um, and I, 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 like doing that. I love research and, uh, you know, developing things, but I also love seeing patients, but it's like, you know, Only so
1: many hours in a day, but it is wonderful that you're doing as much work as you're doing. And I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us. And we're really excited that you and Daisy are going to be working together on a training program. Uh, That's something we've been encouraging Daisy to think about as well. So it's wonderful that uh, you're going to be uh, working together on that. So, again, thank you so much for spending time with uh, us here at TIC Boot Camp. And I know the folks in our community are really going to be blessed when they have an opportunity to hear um, all the wonderful things that the two of you shared with. So thank you and uh, yeah, good and night.
2: Keep your eye out for the documentary coming out. Um, and we'll, we'll send you a little, some clips. And uh, I'd love to uh, kind of get together with you and uh, learn more about your organization um, and see how we can collaborate. And I've learned that, you know, I first started like, I don't want to tell people what I do and they're going to be a competitor. Ridiculous. I mean, you can't even spoon feed them um and so i think collaboration is the way to go and uh you know helping each other we can just reach so many more people um love your style and
1: uh and, thank you and, and, and so much for so it's, it's been an honor spending
3: so, all this time with us tonight
1: yes and, thank you i i appreciate both of you and uh and and you're really doing god's work and thank you for continuing to bless everyone so we'll uh thank you and and wish you well
0: thank you you too Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Kent Holtorf. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Holtorf, check out his websites at holtorfmed.com and drkentholtorf.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com bite byte to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you as always, for listening.